Hi, Rachel. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good overall. I've had quite the adventure since、Ooh. we recorded last. I don't know if you've heard the news at all. I don't know if you heard about it, but I got into heaven. I've been looking and searching everywhere to ensure that we are the only Australian well, Babylon Five podcast. Why didn't you share this with me until now? Because I just got back. I thought you heard the news. The good word. The good word is I got into heaven to find out if there's any Babylon Five podcasts that、how、are made by Australians. How did you get、there. past Peter? Well. Let me tell you the story about how I got past Saint Peter. I lied. I used. <laughs> I just lied. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that work? I combed my hair to the left instead of the right. I grew out a mustache. I put on some glasses, and he believed that I was a different guy, and I'm allowed in. So I walked in. And sure, Peter is easy to fool. I mean, that guy was crucified upside down. So what does he know? And so I got into heaven, and I've had a look around. Now God Himself is very hard to meet. I have yet to get a meeting with God, but don't worry, heaven is easy to get into now that I've unlocked the trick,、okay. which is hey. lying. Hey, and there are no. What about the guy that actually you, imp- you that you? Well, they're not you dead yet. That's fine. Be, no, but that wouldn't、That's、be、fine. on his list、That's、if、fine. they weren't dead. Oh, well, okay. Well, I didn't think about them. I'm sure they're they're hanging out in the line. You have sentenced <laughs> a unknown individual to eternity in purgatory. But Rachel, Rachel, it was worth it because in. The location of heaven. There are no Australian Babylon Five podcasts. Now that doesn't mean they aren't there. God could be hiding them in his upper echelon with the angels, like Gabriel. Maybe there's an Australian angel. Is there any Australian angels? I don't know. I'll have to go back and ask. But we are Yum Yum Podcast, the only Australian Babylon Five podcast that there is heaven approved. And we are going through Babylon Five one episode at a time, revisiting it, rewatching it, and reviewing it. And I am just so excited because we are nearing the end of season four. We are right up to the edge of it, and we're about to dive off. But there's some more things to cover before we get to it. Now. Rachel, could you please、uh, inform everyone why we are called Yum Yum Podcast? No, please. <sighs> Only if you don't make me elaborate. I mean, I will you give, have to explain it. I will give、it. you the direct answer. As long as you don't elaborate, and you don't make me elaborate, I just want. You to confirm that you will explain this so everyone can understand the gravity of it. I I will try. Okay, I will try. And the reason why we're called Yum Yum is you're a jerk, and you made us both watch Star Trek Discovery, and you know. Specific moment 
there was an individual that had been paid to write a script, people who had been paid to edit that script, and a person who was paid to perform a specific line in that script, and lots of people who were paid to make sure that the filming and recording and audio process was correct on the day of filming, that somebody was paid to store that information, somebody was paid to edit that information. Oh, yeah. Advertisers paid to have their ads played. Streamers, streaming sites allowed it on their sites. Around this, you said that you wouldn't add anything. Oh, I just wanted to just chip in that Netflix paid the bills for a woman to lick her lips sexily, throw her hair back and say yum yum in reply to a normal question, a normal statement in a narrative. How often are you asked to go murder somebody? When I went up to heaven, there was this guy who combed his hair on the left and had a mustache and I was asked to kill him so that way I could take his spot in heaven. And who asked me to kill that person? You, the yumlings out there, because you need to know if we are heaven approved, which we are. Now, what? Just because there aren't any others in heaven doesn't mean that we're heaven approved by default. Okay, I'll You're... come back next week to find out via no, God. No, 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 no. No more murders. No more stealing people's places in heavens. In heavens, there's multiple according to Rachel's faith. I went up there and there was one. It was filled with Catholics. No, 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 no. You said that there was an upper echelon. That means that there's tears to heaven. Of course, that's where the angels hang out. There's not. Now, Rachel, instead of no, no, knowing me, how about you yes, yes, yes me by telling us all, by telling us all. The DVD description for the episode we'll be breaking down today. What is the episode? Okay. At this point, would you like me to say what I accidentally titled my notes as for this episode or leave it for when it is most relevant? You might as well say it now since you've dropped it. In oh, no, I am, I'm willing. I'm willing to wait and hold up. And tease what my notes are called. There's a reason why I didn't get into heaven. Because patience is a virtue I don't have. So please, tell me, at least, what you titled Rising Star as. Riding Star. Like you're riding one? Mm-hmm. Because Delenn gets to ride something. And Jagar gets to watch. It just auto-corrected, but I found it so amusing I refused to change it. <laughs> it. Almost makes you wish that you could peek in on them. See how it's going. But we are talking about Rising Star, as it's officially called. And here is JMS's official description this is from J- the DVDs, according to us, because we assume that he wrote them because he wrote everything. He wrote this episode. He wrote everything. The, these DVD descriptions are heaven approved. Go. Why you got to do that, man? Why you got to do that? Pure fucking hubris. 
to use this Picard quote on you. Ooh. Ooh. Was that a sick burn, right? It was heartburn. <laughs> Will we ever get there? Listen in in two weeks' time when this recording's done. The war is won. Now it's time to win the peace. Earth makes concessions. A new alliance springs from the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. Mars is declared free. And Sheridan is selected for a new leadership post. Oh, that's it? That's it. It ended there? Jakar took out his eye and finally paid off that setup. Fuck! I am wondering what your overall opinion is on Rising Star and what has been your history with this. This is a pretty monumental one. This is a follow-up to the end of the Civil War arc. In a way, this is wrapping it up. And it yet, it isn't the season finale. Nope. We got one more. We got one more, which is one of the weirdest episodes of Babylon 5. I've always really enjoyed this episode. It goes by very quickly and there's a lot going on, but it's tying up all of these loose ends. Like we we see the fallout from Marcus giving up his life force uh, to save Ivanova, uh, the Mars being declared free. Lise, sure. Lise came back. Oh, yeah, that happened. Sheridan becomes the president of the galaxy, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Rangers are fully out in the open now. Mm. Uh, Earth gets a new president. ISN is back. And you like all of this stuff? Yeah, I like all of this. Uh, Delenn is being very proactive. Londo and Jakar are becoming friends. Londo is going to become the emperor when the regent dies, which they suspect will happen soon. Boy, were they wrong. Um. Boy, were they wrong. He'll be here for a while yet to come. What you're describing is interesting because a lot of this is setting up pieces. Yet when this was initially realized, this was to wrap things up. And so there's an element of... Both this is conclusions to things, but since there is another season, it is also looked at rather than concluding, it is setting up stuff. And that is such an interesting place to live when you consider what the episode was originally created to be, which is a a, a safety ending. This is what will happen next. And... I think we'll unpack it a little bit more, but I like the way that it plays with its potential role within the series, which obviously didn't come to fruition. But what did you think of it and what do you think of it now? I've always hated this episode. (laughs) I've never liked it. I have always found it to be far too talky 
some scenes in there I have found to be either cringy or gross. The Jakar thing is really gross and weird, and it's played for comedy, but I just... I, I know Jakar's been horny before. It's weird. It's bizarre. I have not enjoyed some of those performances, the tone, the whole notion of... Once we won the war, now you're the president of the galaxy because that's the next logical step for our hero. These were things I have not enjoyed. These are things that I did not like. And the episode outside of that just had such a uh, dryness to it and a little bit of a corniness as well, especially with Sheridan. I agree. It is very corny. With Sheridan and Garibaldi's stuff. But there's elements that I really like, and this does have my favorite Besta scene in the entire show. I love Besta's conversation with Sheridan, the back and forth, the game of verbal chess, and how with each line delivered from the both of them, the the power in the room swaps hands. I, I really adore that. But also Earth has this new leader and she seems pretty shitty and they're just going to leave it at that and we never see her again we hear about her again but we never see her again and so i've always considered this to be a real mess of an episode and as a potential wrapping up of things even when i watched it back in the day not knowing about the the behind the scenes production stuff of babylon 5 thinking it was going to end after this fourth season i i always looked at it as odd that this would be a way to conclude things. It just didn't have that oomph factor. And it does sit in a weird place of being the in-between episode of two really big ones. And so it just has lived in this awkward zone. Now, on this watching of it, I I feel very different. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time with it. I liked a lot of the political machinations and the discussions of peace as a concept. Well, what changed is my attachments to the Earth Civil War arc is different. As we discussed last episode with Endgame, the big action set pieces, all of the heroic moments that have once held my attention didn't really this time round, but in Rising Star, the discussions and the philosophies and the differences of ideology and the whole concept of what do you do once you have won the war, there is now messes and you have to clean those up and how does one do that? And I like the cynicism and pessimism in the episode when it comes to that. It's not instantaneously just rosy and everything's good. It's shitty, and people are upset, and people are going to make their plays, and I I, I enjoy that very much so on this watch. Right or wrong, you led an insurrection against your own government. That's mutiny at best. Treason at worst. So morally I was right, but politically I'm inconvenient. Inconvenient doesn't even begin to cover it. Now we have to clean up the mess. I'm gonna get personal. Ivanova should have boffed him. 
She should have taken his virginity before he died. Yep. The least she could have done. Hey, he will at least go to heaven. <laughs> he didn't he didn't he didn't soil himself before marriage. Well, he did some other sins. When I well oh well, come on. What did he do wrong? He was just a an angelic figure. Mm-hmm. Our boy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. to be real. The you think that was the only pike he played with? Oh, yes, masturbation. That's a sin. I read that right up there, the seven deadly sins. Uh, He's also killed people. Or as he would call it, wanking, because he's British. And we also call it wanking, because we're Australian, and we're uh, part of the Commonwealth, which is owned by the King of England, who I'm sure will live for a very long time. And I just want to get into... Probably at least another decade, right? Another decade. I hope not. Another day. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. The coronation costs too much. The funeral costs even less. Now, Marcus is gone. Ma- Marcus is gone. They did not say that he died. He, they, they have his body right there with they a cloth over say. it. Rachel? He died. The short story doesn't exist. His body's there dead with a cloth over it. No. Okay, with no, a sheet no, over it. No, that was Clark's body that we saw no, with a sheet over it. No. We see him slump over. Now, it's sad and it's memorable. And this is the last big scene we get from Ivanova until the, the, the very end of the series. This is the thing you are left remembering. Yes, they have a shot of her at the end looking out the window and we get some voiceover to quickly patch over why the actress won't be back next season. But this moment of her crying and just letting everything out is just the biggest gut punch that the character has had. And essentially, that's where we're left with her. That's the thing that has always made... Ivanova a difficult character for me when it comes to her not being in the fifth season is we left her on such a devastating note, one that just leaves you staggering after you have watched it. Claudia Christian gives the best performance of the entire series here, and it's not just because she's crying and yelling and doing all of these heightened things, but it's a mixture of everything as well. There's lots of quiet moments, lots of subtle moments. There's humor in here as well, even though it is buried amongst the tears. And I also want to give, as usual, a big shout out to, to Richard Biggs in the scene, because as usual with Franklin, he has to be the, the 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 straight man in the conversation. He has to be the person that is reacting off of something else and helps ground the scenes. And the writing for Franklin is great, but Richard Biggs is really good in the scene. He's crying. He's upset. Marcus was his friend. And so having these two together in in this conversation makes a lot of sense because who are the two characters that are going to be the most upset about Marcus no longer being with us? These are the ones, and obviously Franklin, because he's the guy that had the device and he put it away, so there's going to be some ownership on his part when it comes to Marcus's demise. But, I I, I mean, 
it's hard not to get choked up even thinking about it because it's just we're upset that Marcus is gone, but we're more upset at how much this is going to ruin the lives of those left behind, specifically a Vonnevoe character who has always suffered. I think it is brutal and truthful the way that you feel when you've experienced a loss of somebody that you didn't know well in certain ways or like the idea of mourning the loss of a potential future it's crushing the way that Ivanova is experiencing it here and I do find it interesting that that is where we leave her off because when we do see her in the finale it's almost as if um, instead of learning from Marcus that maybe she should give it one more go to open her heart again, it's forever sealed her heart. She runs away from her heart. Her rabbi told her that doesn't work, even in space. No, 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 it doesn't. She says all the things that we have, as the viewers, have been needing to hear her express, that she knew that Marcus loved her and that she was afraid to accept that love because she's been hurt so many times before. The relationships he's had before either did not work out, became poisonous, or they hurt her, all of which we've seen as well as have had implied to us. But Marcus was there, and he he was different, and she still couldn't accept him and treated him the way she did. And what I really enjoy about that aspect is this is coming from a person who's so grief-stricken that they're coming up with all of these rationalizations and revelations and things like that, because... It's such a trauma right now, but everything she said, you could easily counter, as did Franklin, where it's like, you're trying to protect yourself, and you didn't need to have that relationship with him to be a happy person. All of this is still true, and so when you go back and watch these episodes with Marcus and Ivanova, and he's being a real prick to her and being a jokester, and she's fed up with it, but she kind of finds it cute and funny, it doesn't mean that oh, there's Ivanova not realizing that love was right there. It has that, of course, but I don't think it makes Ivanova heartless when you go back or necessarily even more tragic. It's just when you're encountering something like she is, this this loss of something that could have been, you, you talk the way she does, and, and that's very much drawn a line in the sand when she says... All love is unrequited. A very dramatic statement, a very harsh statement, one that they even discuss in the episode. Other people go over it. It's something she said that somehow got out of that room between just the two of them. What do you think about love being unrequited? What do you think about 
that idea in general, in real life, but also in the terms of the narrative that we're watching. I understand where Ivanova is coming from. Like, I understand how she's reached that point and also what she means by it. But I am on Delenn's side if she's wrong. In her life, she's been proved that love is unrequited. It goes away. It's not returned in the long run. We've heard about these previous relationships. We had Talia and how that went down. And we even know when it comes to her family. She could not forgive her father, really, until after he was dead, and it was too late by then, in some way. On a personal level, yes, but that relationship did not mend until the very end and even beyond. And her mother killed herself. And we've heard how much that has rippled throughout Ivanova's life and made her the woman she is today. And so when I look at it from where she's at, I agree with her. How would you not think like that? That's the greatest thing about the writing is... Every character has a very specific point of view on life, and you can understand why they think like that. Now, do you personally agree with them? That's up to you as the viewer, but it's justified within the text of the show. I can point to so many examples leading to this, why Ivanova would say that, and it's true. And it's interesting when Lanier hears it, and he talks about it, and you can tell he thinks it's true as well. But he doesn't want to admit it, because admitting it would mean it's real. But in terms of life, I felt that for sure. I felt that for sure, whether it is from family or friends or peers or even in a relationship. Now, do I think all love is unrequited? No, I don't. But I I mean, I've been in that headspace. I've been in that time in my life where I felt it. And so when I watch it here... I get a reaction from it on that deep level. And that's what is really haunting about this being the final scene for Ivanova. Because until the very end of the show, and even then, she's never counted on it. She's never proven wrong. She's never given an alternative for this. She is embittered by it. And we see her in her older age, and she has gone through the the career that she wanted, but it's left her as a husk still. And she needs to find meaning and love and life again. And it's really sad that one of our main characters, especially someone like Ivanova, who is so strong-willed and passionate and funny and charismatic, is just stomped into the dirt like this. And he gave so much and he wanted so little in return. He just wanted a kind word or, or a smile. And all I ever gave him in two years grief (laughs) and it's because I think I saw what I wanted and I was afraid I said the name and it made you wince Lanier 
we cut over to the White Star. There's all of this diplomatic stuff happening with the Len trying to get the League of Non-Aligned Worlds together and propose something to them. While that is all happening, Lanier laments about Marcus as well, because the other character who was closest to Marcus was Lanier. And I do appreciate that we hear his points of view. We have not been big lovers of incel Lanier, as we like to call it, or Lanier being an edgy little boy. But I thought this was one of the best scenes when it comes to that. And it made me uncomfortable, and it made me sad, because it works. I think this is a really well-constructed scene. I think it's really well-acted. It's awkward, it's uncomfortable, but it's all of those things because it's true. I would love to sit here and say, oh, Lanier is this beautiful little cherub hero guy that I've been wanting to say for four seasons, but there's stuff happening in his brain and in his heart that align with what is happening within this conversation. Now, for you, you're definitely not a big fan of this Lanier storyline. We have tried actively to give it a go, but each time you have very quickly snapped into, no, I don't want it, I reject it. So talk to me about what you think about Lanier's reaction to Marcus's death and Ivanova's statement about love being unrequited. Okay, so here is where I land on it. I understand why the characters come at it the way that they do. And I am on Delenn's side in the fact that I don't think that all love is unrequited. Some love is unrequited. Some is, like, not equal. Right? There's... There's sometimes inequality in that, but and there's different qualities and different types of love. So saying that they are all unrequited is just wrong in its absolute. There's plenty of unrequited love. Lanier has got buckets, lo- bucket loads of it. Mm-hmm. But. I do really appreciate the nuance of the performance in response to that because um, from both of them, right? Because it's not just Lanier's reaction, it's also Delenn's of the look in his eyes when she said it and also the way that she sort of doesn't fully look at him but cups his face mm-hmm. like he's a child, mm-hmm. like she's like he's like a good there, little boy. There's intimacy and distance in each of the decisions, like of the the holding of the face, and they're physically close, but there's no warmth in her voice, in her tone, as she says it. It is that caring and speaking down to a child, the soft tones, not the passion and excitement that she has in her voice when she's talking to John. It's comforting. That's what it is. She's there to comfort Lanier, but 
it's a scene of subtext. Both of them aren't saying what they're actually saying. Lania is swallowing tears during this when it comes to how he knows love is unrequited between him and Delenn. It's not going to happen. It never will. But, but he can't accept no. that because of his heart. Yep. But he's fooling himself heart into thinking it. What his heart wants. He's fooling himself into thinking that he can just avoid that, that he can run away from his own heart, the, the similarity between him and Ivanova there. And Bill Moomy's expressions and the the tone of his voice and the way his eyes dart around it's really well done and then with Delenn she knows that Lania loves her and Lania feels this way but she's not going to address it because it doesn't need to be addressed it will ruin things and I want to know just your thoughts on on that side of it we know all about Lania and how he's thought process has come to be this way because it has been examined in the show. But this is the moment where it's undeniable, or maybe it is if you aren't being keen-eyed, but at least for, for you and I, that it's an acknowledgement through the acting alone that Delenn knows Lania feels this way and she yeah. chooses not to engage mm. with it no. openly. What do you think about that? I think it feels very true to her character and also to the values of the religious caste of the Mimbari. That's sort of where I land on it. Like, it makes sense on multiple levels. But I still feel for Delenn and I still feel for Linnea because neither of them are happy with this situation. I mean, isn't she? Like, she's she's more happy, right, than him. Like, he's left heartbroken. But I think also, like, coming at this from a rewatch perspective, right, mm-hmm. we know what he does. And I, when I was watching this scene... I couldn't help but think about her sort of statement or speech thing after he leaves Sheridan and after he runs away of that speech that she gives um, sort of casts an interesting shadow. And I'm talking about the one that she has after Lanier has done his major fuck up. And she's just like, I always knew. But I didn't think he would go this far. But I didn't, I didn't think he would do this. And I think this moment is her thinking that she's like, um, put the cork back in the bottle. And <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> do you think this is irresponsible of Delenn to not solve this or address it or properly deal with it because it's selfish i it's it's selfish (laughs) she knows how he feels and uses him and you you uses that because he's an 
un- like he'll die for her. Yeah. He's that loyal. He loves yep. her. Yep. She knows that. And I think she cannot. She's too attached to him in terms of his function. She really likes him as a person as well, but she's not interested in him romantically. But she is not willing to give him up for the sake of him having a good life. And that like that's a part like a common thing that that is used in TV and in general of loving somebody enough to let them go. I understand completely. I, I've always struggled with it because I don't want to just say Delenn's in the wrong because she uses Lanier in this way because I get it. Watch, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. And whenever they do talk about it now or going forward, there's just no way to go forward with it other than to sever the relationship between the two of them, which he tries to do, and it still doesn't work. Now, I think the aspect that's at play coming back to this conversation is love. Again, I think, and I've always felt this, that she looks at the relationship she has with Lanier as a loving relationship, as as a form of love, and that that should satisfy Lanier enough. Yeah, which like, is basically the speech you my love. that he gives when he reveals that he's in love with her. Of like, it's not the kind of love that you know. It's a higher love. It's a higher love, and that, that is the way that she sees it and she feels about it. But his feelings have changed, and they she- are no longer platonic. He is literally friend zoned. Yeah. And he can't handle that. Attache zoned. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And and he doesn't know what to do about it. And so he tries. And and she doesn't know what to do about it because it's an odd power dynamic. Yeah. And she's already in love. To her, as would many people, you think, right, Rachel, you would think that a person who's actively in a relationship, a very public one, literally gets married in this episode, it would be clear that they're not someone to be pursued romantically. No, like they're they're done. Um, (laughs) They're off limits. Um, (laughs) And I've known people, as have you, that have had relationships and somebody outside of the relationship has tried to pursue this person and that person was clueless that this was happening in the first place. They just thought they had a really good friend and it was quite obvious what it was, like with Lanier here. Lanier here is a fun thing to say. And it's tragic, but it does happen. We don't like it because it's really, really uncomfortable. reality to it. Uh, I guess I'm desensitized to that kind of story in media because of the stuff that I watch. Did they tell you what Ivanova said at the end? All love is unrequited. Yeah. 
They told me. She's wrong, of course. Of course. Londo and Jukar are now best friends, and they're trading barbs with one another, and it's a very strange leap from where they once were. Uh, the last major a conversation... Cry from... I stay out of your universe, you stay out of mine. The last big conversation they had was about signing that treaty together. And since then, they've been working together in that capacity, and it makes sense. And this is jumping ahead a little bit, because we're trying to wrap up the show without knowing that the show would continue. And so let's have them be kind of where they were in the early days, where they would trade funny lines with one another. I think it all ties together well enough with Peter Jurisic's line delivery of how they have a strange relationship developing right now. And, but he likes it. But he likes it. And I, I really think that that specific line delivery almost saves this this leap forward. Thankfully, season five will also rectify this in great ways and and follow on this. They'll be buddy-buddy, but there's going to be episodes, specifically the Londo Heart Attack episode, that really comes to terms with their friendship and relationship and the history they've had with one another. But it's here to set up some stuff. So... Jakar and Londo are going to fly off on the White Star and meet up with Delenn. Londo is being set up to be the Emperor. The Regent is dying. And we get this all happening so that Londo and Jakar can have some funny little back and forths. We. Bacchanage. Some badinage. As Talia Winters once said, remember her, Talia? I sure do. Ah, Talia, will you come back ever? I don't know. Maybe. Let's see if the animated film that comes out will secretly give us Talia. She wasn't listed in the cast, but that doesn't mean a man, you know, doesn't mean a man can stop dreaming about it. A man can dream. But they are friends. And they're watching the ISN report about the wedding and about all of this joyous stuff. And they come across to... Cars eating rice. If we're skipping, obviously, to the end scene, which is so cute. Until it isn't. (laughs) So cute. Until it is disturbing. Disturbing. Like, because you immediately know, like... Most people would notice the absence of Jakar's eye. I'll be weird before they bring it up, but oh, a, lot, okay. a lot of people don't. I, actually, a lot of people don't. I don't think I really noticed it. I was gonna say I never noticed until it really got flagged. Oh no, I really noticed it this time because oh, yeah, I was really watch, yeah. appreciating the work that they did on the scar mm. uh, around his eye. And also that, like, I'm like, did they glue his eye shut? Or does he just have that much control over his eyelid? I I think Andreas had great control (laughs) of his eyelids. Like, that was what I was was thinking about that a bit too much, to be honest. I Uh, love Because I obviously know where it goes. I love that you can have 
a beautiful moment about living through history, surviving it, poetic lines of dialogue from Jakar, the classic outrageous statements from Londo, and then before you know it, you're you're reminded, that's right, I'm in a scene with two old perverts. Perverts. Perverts is the perfect word. They're just a couple of guys. And you know that, you know, you you know that you, like, Londo wishes that they had an external monitor like Franklin oh, yeah. had this... for, for him to also be watching. It's funny because they cut to, they should have cut to a scene of Franklin in Med Lab and the TV's on. <laughs> but but he's not impressed. He's just like, my lord! And he, and he screams, Jacob! <laughs> This episode had that type of humor, though, where the general that comes up to Sheridan does a Sheridan, you're at it again type humor in there. This is fucking atrocious, by the way. This is such a bizarre swing at comedy. I've never found it funny, by the way. I've always found it amusing that the eye did get used. And this is the last time, really, the eye gets used for anything anything. ever like that. Obviously, he'll still have his prosthetic eye, but they never pop it out again. Not in my recollections. I find it atrocious, awful, perverted. Perverted? Perverted. I understand what you're saying. Like, What was Jameis? And... And... It brings a smile to my face because it is so disgusting and it is such a big swing. And, but I kind of love it. I kind of love it. Like, it is awful, objectively awful. Delenn would be so upset. <laughs> but it's also like, it's in plain view. Like, did they come in in such a hurry that they didn't notice it? They were too busy like, kissing, <laughs> they were too busy canoodling. Oh. <laughs> I like that Londo says, it makes you want to have a peek in on them or whatever the pervy line he says. And it's already weird, that line. But what yeah, I it's adore just like, why, about this. Why this, this transition? Uh, it, like, it takes time. They choose to set this up. He is kinky Pay in this episode, Londo. And keep it through. Like, yeah, he's, he's playing with his penises. And he says, you'll need a new change of underwear once you read this because you're going to shit your pants. Aye. And and what I adore about this, though, the, the whole Jakar is taking his eye out to spy on Delenn and John having sex on the honeymoon night is you would yeah, not get I... this in a screenplay written by committee. No. This is what you get in a screenplay you... written by yes. one man with no network <laughs> stopping him. Yep. Because at this point, the network was dying. They were done. That's why the fourth season was going to wrap up the way it yeah, was. There like, is no... I got nothing to lose, bitches. There I is... got nothing to lose. After the Keffer incident, they just stopped. They just took their hands off the steering wheel and said, okay, JMS, do be what... Free. Do Be free. Do what... Just do, don't do, go over budget and be free. Do whatever the fuck you want. Don't try and get nominated for Emmys, though. Other than that, have a ball. And, and here's... One of the bizarre things we get from it. Truly insane. And that's what you get from Babylon 5. You can have all of these things afforded to you as a viewer because it's one man writing it. 
wonderful things, spectacular things, things that we've discussed many times over. But these elements of absolute insanity is also a thing you get. It's the baggage, and I love it. That's why I fear a reboot of Babylon 5. I just worry that you would you would not get this type of fucking no, craziness. No, no. And if you did, you, you, if you, did, get you would not fever hear... dreams of episodes. You would hear people shrilly, like at the top of their voice with a shrill voice, scream to the heavens about how awful this scene is. Could you imagine if this scene came out today? The, the Twitter reaction to it would be fucking endless. And I'm saying this as somebody who said that this scene is disgusting. Yeah. I could be one of those voices, but here's the thing. I'm saying it with a smile on my face because it's all I also admire the uh, audacity it's... of it. Yeah, like, it is one of those things where I am more forgiving of it because it's old. Also, I'm more forgiving of it because it has such a wonderful whiplash of tone from that to Delenn giving an awe-inspiring speech about time, endurance, uh, friendship, wars that come and go, but what remains. The next 20 years would see great changes, great joy and great sorrow. The Telepath War, the Drak War. The new alliance would waver and crack. In the end, it would hold. Because what is built endures. And what is loved endures. And Babylon 5, Babylon 5 endures. I didn't put this in my notes anywhere, but I just want to touch upon it ever so quickly. Garibaldi is here. Garibaldi rescues Lee. Goes up against the mob, baby. He has a Looney Tunes gag. girl. Gets Lise. Don't say girl. It's Lise. Please, Rachel. Lise isn't just a girl. She's a boss. Because she's now a multi-millionaire in charge of Edgar's industry. And she needs someone to help her figure out how to run it. Because, Rachel, what does she know? She's just a boss. I I, I have nothing else to say. Do you have anything else to say? Lise and Garibaldi fuck. That is canon. They fuck. We've seen it on screen now. Anything about Garibaldi uh, being left with the potential of multi-millionaire ending? We know that this does happen to him. He gets to be a filthy capitalist who smokes cigars and bitches about his wife, but... Okay. But... I have a question. I have a question, which is, he phrases it like they will say, I married you for your money. Mm. Are they married when we see them fuck? No. I think it's, we will be married because finally we can be together. Let's cut through the bullshit. we're, We're done now. We're done. We're like, it was always going to be us, and then it wasn't always going to be us. I always, Garibaldi always thought that it was going to be them, but he, she was like, ah, nah, I'm done. No, and now Garibaldi, she's like, hey. Garib- this is big for him because now he, that you're fully bold. No, but, but, but in, in all fairness, he was never at this level of commitment. No, no. He would no. never have actually tried to marry her back in the day. 
no, even if you just kept walking through life. Still pretended to go life. back to Babylon Five. Uh, uh, yeah, and season five exists, so we also get the pleasure of Lise somewhat being in the season, but not. <laughs> Garibaldi is framed as this reckless wildcard because Bester, you should be afraid because Mister Garibaldi will get you. At the end He's of the day, gonna go he will go you. after you. This is he will not be happy. He will not be done. He will not rest. He will not rest until you are gone. And this is the magic of JMS on the other side of that coin. I didn't. You, you, you don't think Best is going to show up in this? No, and there he is. He just walks in and he and immediately he, starts talking he is shit. Wonderful. Oh my god. He, like this scene is one of the ones that I think of when I think of Bester. The tonal shifts that he does and the ease at which he does it and the music that underpins these moments. It is the lighting too. Beautiful. I would the blocking, the oh, yeah. business, all of it is great. This is an excellent scene to use as an example of what a good JMS sequence looks like in Babylon 5. It's talking, but there's threats and there's jokes and there's teasing of future events, there's recalling to the past, there's even an act break that I really find amusing, which is, I will make sure you don't leave here alive, and then cut to ad break, obviously, then immediately back to Sheridan blowing that off. I've been dead before. Do you think that matters to me, you piece of shit? You can't threaten me like that. I don't give a rat's ass what you're going to do, Bester. Eat my shit. I adore this scene. It's my favorite Bester scene. I find Walter Koenig's performance to be pitch perfect. He's scary. He's amusing. He's got that energy we love so much from Bester where... He's so confident in himself. He doesn't need to answer to anyone. He He's a cop. He's a filthy, filthy cop. And he's just going to walk through life getting what he wants because he's owed it and he's made sure that he gets what he wants. The, 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 the whole thing about Garibaldi and how you used him, you, you turned him against me you turn him against all of his friends so that he could help stop some some person harming the psycho. And they do that thing that you see in movies and shows all the time where, oh, I wouldn't say that out loud, of course. I'm acknowledging it. If that was the case, yes, it did happen like that, but I'm not doing it. And I don't usually like that in TV shows and movies, but when you put it in the mouth of characters in b5 it really works i think sheridan is a lightning rod for those scenes because it reminds me of lita in an earlier episode of season four where he asked her if she blew up zaha doom with her brain right and she does that well if uh, if i was that powerful that could have been the case but that's not strictly being said and i think sheridan specifically bruce boxleitner is great at having those scenes just just pop off like that uh, the whole where we're like rebo and zudi like a snake and a mongoose now bester is here to 
not go over what has happened already with Garibaldi. That's what that's what Sheridan wants to go over. But what is best to actually hear for Rachel? Why is he meeting up with the most important man in the galaxy currently? He is there to make sure that Sheridan didn't kill his lover and his unborn child. That's it. Uh, he wants to make sure that his little girlfriend, uh, who he seems to think is the love of his life, and I'm like, well, I don't think she can really give consent. So I deny that. <laughs> but, she, but she called him Al last time we saw her. Yeah, but when we know that lots of people call him Al. That's not an exclusive thing. You can call me Al. That's a song. Yeah, um, Had Chevy Chase in the music yeah. video. Okay. Go ahead. Come on, Rachel, come back. I know that you're a big Paul Simon fan. I know you need to listen to the song now, but you're right. It's weird and creepy, and Sheridan calls it out on that, but he still has a heart. Sheridan knows what it's like to have lost someone more than once, and he wouldn't inflict that upon anyone. What is rather uh, not interesting per se, but it's good to have follow-through on this, is the emphasis on Sheridan's burden of using those telepaths, that they had to go through this rigorous examination process of who's right and who's wrong for this and that he does feel bad for having cost those people their lives he does feel the burden and the guilt of it we were a bit more flippant about that conversation last week but here you you do get the sense of it from Sheridan and it's very important to have this be expressed to Bester, who is a character who is not only just a telepath himself, not only just somebody who has a personal connection with with his uh, lover, but his whole entire M.O. is about the safety and the superiority of the telepaths. And he's having a conversation with a guy who used them as weapons. Ironically speaking, that's what telepaths are supposed to be used for as weapons, but Bester doesn't know that. We do, and so does Sheridan, but that doesn't excuse things either. Bester's a piece of shit, okay? He's he's a monster. He's an asshole. But he has an angle here that's good, because usually when he talks to Sheridan, he's a piece of shit. He's got his own agenda. He's obviously a villain, and aka, he doesn't really have a, a leg to stand on. This is one of the conversations where he has a very firm position to stand with because Sheridan did use telepaths as resources and he did use them. And how's he any better than the people he was fighting against or even Bester himself? Because Sheridan goes over it. In a few years' time, after the dust has settled, you'll rise up and try and take over and we'll be there to kick your ass when you do it. Best has that cockiness of we'll see. What do you what are, what are your what are your thoughts on just that aspect when it comes to the dynamic of power between between Bester and Sheridan? Because oftentimes when they talk to one another, 
best is usually got nothing on his side when it comes to like a moral high ground. So here he has a, a, a foothold in that. What do you think? It's just another example of how each time Bester comes back, they change their dynamic with him. He's never been the one rightfully on a high horse, but he is now, and he has more control over the situation than Sheridan. Sheridan is at the mercy of EarthGov and Earth Force at that moment. He has an ace up his sleeve, which we discover fairly quickly, but it also forces Sheridan to unburden himself with the guilt and also to justify it to Bester, to the face of telepaths of like I did this to your people and it wasn't okay it had I like it it wasn't right it wasn't fair but I did it in the best way that I could because it needed to be done in my opinion we needed them as a weapon so that we could succeed in this battle and save human lives and Bester doesn't care about the human lives. He only cares about the telepath and the telepaths in general, but the telepath that he cares the most about is his lover. Who carries his seed. He is pointed out to be a manipulative piece of shit as well because Sheridan says the difference is he doesn't, he, Sheridan, doesn't like using people like this. He doesn't like using them and abusing them and making them lesser than, but Bester loves it. That's second nature to him. That's what he does. His relationship with this woman is that as well. She's just something to him. As much as he may bemoan it and say that he loves her, we know the relationship. We know what it is. And it's gross. And that's also like, that's not just an audience perspective that's also specifically our perspective and our opinion on it based on our values at like at the moment right oh yeah being like no 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 that relationship not okay not okay not it is a very, very riveting scene. And everything works together in that scene for me. I find the ad break cheesy. It always takes me out of it a bit. <laughs> but I think it was would have been great if you were watching it in the original format. I find it amazing that you think that threats still mean anything to me. Do this or you're a dead man? Death. Been there. Done that. Not a threat, Captain. Simply a statement of fact. I can have half a dozen sharpshooters cover this building at every exit. As soon as you poke your head outside, they'll put a bullet through it. You know what the difference is between you and me, Bester? You use people because you like it. And if someone gets hurt in the process, well, that's life. 
Earth has new leadership. Clark is dead. He's gone. He killed himself like a dog. We have a president from the Russian consortium. That's where Ivanova's from. That's where Ivanova's from. That's from, and this one actually has an accent. And, it's and a it's Polish accent. Susanna instead of Susan. Oh yes, uh, yes, Susanna Luchenko, uh, and she is. A piece of shit. But I love her. But she's, she's a politician. She's a politician. Like, she's, she's a she's a nasty politician. She's a person that would be a politician. <laughs> and a successful politician. One of the elements that I like about Rising Star is the structure with the ISN reports helping frame Bookend. sequences and giving us context for things, catching us up, but also giving necessary exposition in a way like, that allows I'm, it. I'm so happy to see you again, Jane. I'm so happy that you're back. And it's got some great juxtaposition to the what we what we see inside of those closed in those closed rooms with the shadiness going on. The public faces and the private faces. And I appreciate the ISN stuff being there again too because we used to have ISN drops a lot in the show but after a certain point they got taken away and then they were the propaganda ones used sparingly it felt like we were returning to something but we have our new leader of earth and she's not nice she comes across as a bit of an apologist for how things went before she has so many reasons as to why nobody rose up against Clark oh, we, we, from we, it was the never government. the right time it was never the right time it was always inconvenient his people were everywhere we would be dead you if were the we only tried. person that could do it because you were outside of his control it drove him crazy and that was a strength and now that you've come here and saved the day uh, you did it in you did it with all the right reasons, but not in the, in the right most way. Inconvenient way, like, like, come on, dude! Just you, you couldn't have done it in a way that was easier for us to spin. There is a lot of conversations had between Sheridan and the president when it comes to rising up against fascism or rising up against a dictator. But there's also lots of conversations about what the happens, consequences. the consequences of making an insurrection against your own government, even if they're an evil government. And the easy knee-jerk response to have is, uh, it shouldn't matter, Sheridan literally saved the world a second ago, and so everything before that should be washed away, as well as what he was fighting for was morally right. But guess what? It's Babylon 5 we're watching, baby! It's a show about politics, and guess what? Politics isn't idealistic. Politics is fucking miserable. Politics and morality are rarely... On the same side. On the same side. Hence, it was a big deal when it was for Veer in that previous episode. How do you feel just about that being a thing that is followed up? Usually in the story, the hero saves the day, everyone celebrates, hey, Captain Kirk, 
you you save the day, but you get demoted from admiral to captain, and Kirk smiles because that's what he actually wanted. Here, instead, it is, you save the Earth, and guess what? Doesn't matter, because you did it the wrong way. Well, what was the right way? Not going to tell you. What I am going to tell you is, what you did was inconvenient, and now we're going to punish you, and now we're going to mm-hmm. go through the, the fucking drudgery that is bureaucracy. Yep. It makes sense for Babylon 5, because that's where it's at. And it would feel wrong if Sheridan didn't face consequences. He knew going into it that it, like, it was going to probably end either with him dead or him being court-martialed. Like... That was, like, covered, like, 98% of the storyline what, what was gonna what was going to happen. It was just like, oh, it's probably going to be one of those two things. But if I'm really lucky, I might get out of this completely. <laughs> when it comes to that level of just grimy pessimism that Babylon 5 likes to splash around in, what about that appeals to you as a viewer? Well, it is unique. And it is truthful. It is honest. Because part of what I really like about Babylon 5 is that it looks beyond the surface level to try and find a underlying truth. And the truth is that politics is necessary in an organized society the way that we exist currently, right? Yes. It's not saying that politics needs to exist everywhere, but the way that we do things, it's fairly required if you want any level of fairness and lawfulness, right? So it makes sense that they would have to face up to it because the truth is that it doesn't matter why you do something. It it matters what you do and where you do and who is impacted by what you decide to do. Like, we do not live in a true libertarian society where people can do whatever they like as long as it's they're consenting and it's not harming other people, right? That's not where we are. We are in a world where what you decide to do is not is your decision, but the consequences of that are not up to you. You yeah. don't get to decide whether a murder is justified or not, or there's an insurrection sy- is justified or not. Believe it, there's a system in place, and you know who dictates that system? The man. And the man, you know, you is something you can use for many different things. I love this so much because... It's saying that politics is necessary. It functions, it exists the way that you said it. But it's also inherently broken. Sheridan 
was fighting to restore something that would do this in return that to didn't, him. That, that this wouldn't is what fight they for itself. This is something that would obviously happen. When we saw Earth before Clark came into being in power, it was broken like this. Yes. And so he's gone through this whole entire thing to bring back the glory of Earth Alliance and it's back, baby. It's back to still being inherently Shit. shitty. And so it motivates him to create something better himself. You need that there also to have the president of Earth, the thing that he was fighting for to and saved yeah. for, to be this embodiment of something he does not want anymore and a leader of something he does not want anymore makes it add up and make it more impactful for when he and Delenn and the rest form the mm-hmm. alliance because... Oh, I love it so much when he's like getting let out. After, like, it's been revealed what he's going to do. He's like, oh, you know, I hoped. And we've been organizing this for months. And he just has this massive shit-eating grin. And it's great because he played the game and he won. Yeah, he played politics too. He's not naive. And... I really like the conversation where you must resign. This isn't a conversation. Don't mistake it for that, Sheridan. And how she broke away from the character for a second and said, saddest thing is, you did it for the right reasons. But you did it in the wrong way, in the inconvenient way. And she lays it out for him. She says, this is just how it works. I understand that. That's how that's how this works. They will be out for blood. And it's really well done as a warning sign for Sheridan because he doesn't understand these things. She does. And we will see in season five this happened to him with the colony of telepaths and the and, and the Centauri war and things of that nature where he will have to become like she does where you start making these big picture plays the calls you have to you make have these to make calls the long term calls and you have to come across as an insensitive amoral prick and it's not right but the job demands these type of thought processes and he isn't aware of that yet. He doesn't see it like that. He is just somebody that's having that inflicted upon him. And so the conversations with the president also serve as a great build-up to where he will be going throughout season five. Half of Earth Force wants to give you a kiss on the cheek and the Medal of Honor. The other half wants you taken out and shot. As a politician, you learn how to compromise, which by all rights means... I should give you the Medal of Honor, then have you shot. I confess the idea had a certain appeal when I mentioned it to the Joint Chiefs. Delenn gives a speech on Earth, a place that they've just beat and have helped liberate, 
And she gives this big speech about how they're forming this alliance and all of the non-aligned worlds are now joined and it's been dissolved and we're going to unify and we're going to work together. The rangers are here and they're going to, these are their terms. I have never understood the, 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 the choice of flying hundreds of I white know. stars over that, their heads. That and That was so fucked. And yet she's saying military might and form does not make peace. And yet she just made a move of military might over them to instill fear. And it's deliberate. Like, in direction and choice, it's deliberate. They, the, the actors are scared. The president is scared, openly scared, of, of this move that Delenn has done. And I just can't really make a proper grip on it when it comes to the reasoning as to why it's done like this, because I don't get the sense that this is Delenn saying one thing and then demonstrating another. You know what I'm saying by that? I just don't get the sensation that she's making that kind of call. I get the... The, the the great sense that in the mind of the writer, it's a really striking, beautiful image of these ships flying overhead, the ships that are here to save the day anytime you need them. But there's just, I don't know, it's a very nightmarish image and, and, and the way it's demonstrated. Any thoughts on that? I just agree with you. I'm like... How traumatizing would that moment be for thousands of people who weren't watching ISN? Oh, of course. As well, like, let alone, like, the people watching and being like, what the fuck is happening? This half-human, half-Minbari... We're only 10 years out from the war. Plenty of people are still bigoted as all hell. Of course they are. And now it's just like an alien fleet. The most advanced ships. Like she flags that. These alien ships fly overhead. They just boom there. And John's smiling. It's so crazy. She she she's giving us a speech about how the alliance is built and this beautiful thing of the alliance and I want to take that in because it's not it's only going to also, be important but I can't right. register it because of this this tactic is so out of left field and crazy it's no, just but so, it's like, not such weird at the messaging. same time it's not at the same time because remember this is the species these are the people gun ports open. Yeah, but sign of respect. But the whole point is, is not just Minbari thinking now. No, it's, but it's her. Like, th- like she get she gives the word. She gives the go ahead. Yeah, they yeah, come yeah. through. You don't on her word. You don't think she, being the person who held to cut in her arms as he died, learned that humans don't respond well to this. But they have no interplanetary defense grid because they had to destroy it. Like. I mean, that doesn't negate like, what I said. No, it doesn't negate what you said. But it's just... Isn't 
that was just. This is a truly wild episode. It's all over the place. It's truly all over the place. Boom, boom, boom. It has some of the greatest JMS stuff and some of the weirdest and sloppiest and and some of the worst, but it's such a wild ride nonetheless. I just want to start the spotlight section right now. Spotlight, where we talk about an actor or actress that appeared in the given episode. Go over the performance, go over their role in the show, anything we've seen them in before, and or any interesting pieces of trivia we have. Now, we have to go over the one person that would be obvious, which is the president herself, President Luchenko. She's only in this singular episode, which is one of the things that I've never been able to wrap my brain around. In season five... There are many points where it would have been called for to have her be brought up, not just brought up, but seen and referred to more. But it, it, I, she sits in an odd place. So the actress, as stated, is Polish and her character is Russian. And I can hear a Russian accent in there, but it sounds more of just a Polish accent. And I can't tell well, if it's Russian her... consortium. So it's not. Oh, OK. So the Poland. Poland did get consumed by the Russians in your version of the future. I mean, when this was made, it was... Okay, so the actress is... Uh, how would you pronounce this? I actually have a, a pronunciation for her. So, Biata Poshniak. Biata yeah. Poshniak. Uh, I am Polish and I'm not great with... Biata Poshniak. Poshniak. I am Polish, but I'm not great with Polish names, so forgive me if the pronunciation is bad. Have you and any... Me as well, forgive me. And forgive Rachel. Please, everyone, please I, forgive oh, her. I didn't sneak into heaven. She didn't sneak into heaven, but she's an angel anyway. Do you have any opinions on this performance? I I enjoy it for the most part. I don't think it's perfect. It's definitely not one of those ones where it's elevated by the performer. But I think she does a, a pretty good job with it. Um, because I I believe that she is trying to be ob- as objective as possible and removed while also still having feelings about the situation because like she's been thrust into this and it's just like how much of this is true how much of this is a lie um we're not gonna see the real you we're just gonna see the mask that you have on because that that's part of your purpose as a character while you're here But it never, like, it never leaves a really big mark for me because when I think of this, I think of the bestest scene, mm. which overshadows her. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I have had very mixed feelings on the performance. I liked it more on this watching. She's having to play a role where the character is playing multiple roles. One of the things that I thought was an interesting touch, and I don't know if this is deliberate or if this was from the director or even in the script or just the actress, or if I'm reading too much, but 
when she's putting on her public face, her president face for the ISN or when she's giving the speech, it's as if the character herself is performing and she's not good at it. She's she's not great at it. But when she is just being herself, when she's having those conversations behind those closed doors with Sheridan and with Londo and Delenn and Jakar, she comes across far more comfortable, the character does, far more comfortable because... I don't know, we don't know, right, if this was a person that was angling to be the leader of Earth at any point, or if they were just a politician that the line of succession just fell on them. Unknown. But I I think that was an interesting angle to play, that we see there are multiple ways that this specific character puts on a performance. Uh, I've always been taken by the fact that it's somebody who actually has an accent. They don't always do that in B5, and so it actually does stand out. When I watched this as a kid, I couldn't tell what her accent was, but I knew it was real, or real-ish, in terms of, like, she's European and she may be just leaning into a bit of a Russian, but she sounded like my grandparents, so I'm like, oh yeah, she's European. And I just was always struck by that, because I usually just get Americans or British people and let them do a funny accent. And on the occasion, we would get an actual person with a real-life accent, like, say, the the, the Centauri Emperor back in Season 2, where it's just like, yeah, you, you can just use your normal voice, and it really worked. But I always remember her as being, like, this stuck-up woman with the funny accents. I also think of her hair. Oh, the hair is very much a statement on its own. And her old black outfit. Yes, she's she's striking in multiple way, multiple ways, visually and through the, mm-hmm. the the way she speaks. But I've not liked it overall in the past. And you know, it's okay. That's my general feelings about it. If I am not disappointed that they do not bring her back. I'm just going to raise my own bias here, and I'm I'm willing to let the egg be on my face. And I feel different now, but I've not liked it because her performance comes across awkward and stilted because English is not her first language, clearly, and her accent makes it hard to wrap around some of these words that JMS writes. That has been a hurdle for me. It's not fair. And I recognized that, and I got over it on this watch. I actually really like her performance. I would have liked to have seen more of her. I liked how she played off of Bruce Boxleitner and stood her ground and was a badass and just didn't take any shit. I liked when she delivered that line, that piece as a concept. It rolled off the tongue so naturally, and it just bled into that was the character speaking something honest instead of, hiding behind political speak, yet still being very political. The bit of it is that you probably did the right thing. (laughs) But you did it in the wrong way. In the inconvenient way. Now you have to pay the penalty for that. I know it stinks. But that's the way it is. Hmm. There 
are a couple of things that I'm familiar with. She was in an episode of the Drew Carey show. She was in a number of the X-Files episodes, which I feel like you would be better equipped to talk about because I don't know. Um, Because I haven't watched X-Files the whole way through. So you want to take that one? Boy, a real mystery. She's a voice actress, primarily, uh, or at least has done a lot of voice work. And so in the X-Files, she's a voice. An uncredited one in every single episode. The Hidden Force. The Hidden Force. I don't remember what it is. It's one of the later seasons. Probably in the Doggett years, which is a hazy memory to me. I don't know. She's uncredited, and I couldn't find out why. She's in so many episodes, but she's a voice so no, I do not recollect. For myself, I, none of it. Outside of B5, none of it. The only thing is actually JFK. Oliver Stone's JFK. Where uh, she was there and she played Lee Harvey Oswald's wife. And I do remember her there, but I I, I never connected that it was the same actress from Babylon 5. Just different looks. Diff- the hair, as you said, very striking hairdo in B5, where it almost really defines how you remember her visually. And she was, you know, I'm not a big fan of Oliver Stone in general, I'm not a big fan of JFK as a film, but it does have its moments. I do want to just go over some of her relationships when it comes to this series outside of the episode she was in. I had a look at her social media, and she has talked about Babylon 5 quite a lot. She still engages with people when they bring it up. Yeah. She has done panels. She has done conventions. Mm-hmm. She even did a convention panel where it was strong women in Babylon 5, and she was one of the people that got to talk on that, and she seems very happy about being a part of it. She likes playing strong characters. She's in the Mortal Kombat games as a voice, and she talks a lot about that. And when Mira Falan passed away, she made a response to that inf- like that news coming out and about how her and Mira even though they met only for a little while when filming, they did bond and connect because both of them were people who had to leave their home countries due to turbulence at the time. Obviously, with this actress, she was from Poland when it was under Russia's control, and so she left and she went to America and had to search for new freedoms and new uh, potentials for herself and leave her country behind. And, and so get her discovered and, by Oliver Stone and get discovered by Oliver Stone and to connect with Mira, who obviously had to go through the same thing where she had to leave her country and was exiled and had to go to America and make her career here. And the rest is history, as we know. But I'm really glad to see that she still has feelings about the show. She uploaded a clip from the episode onto her YouTube and she likes comments and responds to them even right to this day really great to see uh, because she was just a one and done role but I can imagine for somebody like her especially when you've been in America for just a little bit of time you're then asked to play the president of the world that's just a role that you just would clap your hands go yes please and 
she's a a person who has a very active interest in uh in 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 politics i guess or in terms of movement of rights and 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 she's an artist i was completely surprised by poet she she's done a lot of things was watching the trailer for one of her short films that's based on a poem that she wrote. And uh, what I was going to say was, I'm just surprised by how active she is because, yeah, sometimes when you see these performers and they're just these one and done things, you go, oh, yeah, they've probably just been an actor and then they probably gave it up and are doing other things. We've had actual stories like that with some of these performers. But my God, you just look at her IMDb and you look at her social media and you she, she's out there doing so much. Like you said, an artist, a poet. She's made films, short films based on her poetry and her writing. She's uh, founded, uh, she had a theater group and they would perform things. And uh, from what I understand uh, now on, on Wikipedia and uh, IMDb, they, they say that she founded uh, Theater Discordia. And... In my recollection, a theater discordia is a type of theater where you have multiple installations in there and you move the audience through them to see different aspects of the story you're making. We've been to some things like that as shows in 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 our in our life. And so if that's correct, I mean that would make sense with what I've seen of some of those short films yeah. and from what I can gather from uh just online research of what she's interested in. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Uh the fact that I was really surprised by was that she helped bring about like the other thing that I found really interesting about her was her influence rather directly on getting the United States to officially recognize International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was my jaw was on the floor. As pretty much as soon as she came over to America, she, she was like, like All hey, right, you're not doing this thing, you should do this thing. You should do this thing. All right. She she was very successful at it. Yeah, she accomplished it and yeah, the first bill in history of the US Congress for national recognition of a holiday. Of the holiday. Oh of the holiday, Other sorry. Holidays. Uh, of, of the holiday, <laughs> sorry. Misspoke. Uh, pretty that's impressive in itself and there's many stories like that just littered throughout her life yeah, like, it's like oh did you know she did something that's really impressive like like when she was younger she was also in an oscar nominated movie and that was she was an extra just an extra she was an extra because it was filming near her house near her house and then later on she would go on to pursue acting work and then oliver stone would recognize her and then it just goes like, on and on and on like i'm that. like one of the other facts where I was just like, okay, lady, do, like you're amazing and outstanding and it's it's a bit ridiculous to be honest. And I was like, okay, Rachel, support other women. Don't, don't fall to the tall poppy syndrome, Australianism, which to explain briefly, Australians like – don't like people, one person succeeding above all others, and we tend to tear them down. But anyway, um, so she passed her entrance exam to the National Film School with the highest score in the country. 
mm. apparently, and received a master's degree with high honors at 22. I thought you were going to raise the fact that she was the first female narrator for whom English is a second language to narrate an audio book in English for Penguin, for Penguin Random House. That's insane. Uh, and and that's she's won her... awards for her audio book reading. And that's where a lot of her work presides now when it's, it comes to English language. She does podcasts. She does audio books. I listen to some and... I'm actually surprised by the range in terms of her her accent stuff. Yeah. I also listen to some of her Mortal Kombat things. And some of the time I'm like, oh, she just sounds like a British lady. And then other times I'm like, oh, she sounds like a Polish person. And other times I'm like, oh, I can hear an American accent with a mixture of a bit of a European accent. Yeah, she's, she's just gone on to, to just be out there. You looked at her social medias and it's just her traveling around the place and just she, having a ball. Like... Social media is not a true representation of people's lives, but hers, like, it makes me go, she looks like she's living her best life and is really happy with what she's doing. It's crazy to see this person I only know in this frame of reference of Babylon 5. To actually bother to look at her outside of that and realize, oh yeah, she's a person, because... When I see her in B5, her character's got to, got to stick up her ass because she has to. So to just see her just outside of that and just in normal clothes and chilling out and smiling and going on holiday and riding a boat or something, it's like, oh, oh yeah, of course. Snorkeling. Snorkeling, yeah. Great. I'm a real big fan of what I've seen of hers. Uh, now done, done doing some research. Her artworks are interesting. Her poetry. I, I've stumbled across one or two little bits of it here and there. Those short films. Uh, really interesting person. This is the type of individual I love stumbling across when we do these spotlights. Yeah. On our scale of yum being bad and yum yum being good, what would you give Rising Star? It is not perfect, but it's fun and I like it. So it's a yum yum from me, even though Jakar is a creepy voyeur. Yum yum. I was going to give it a yum yum, but then you raised that point about Jakar being a pervert. And it does make it almost go down to a yum yum. But this is a type of episode that's messy and rough around the edges in the way that I love and so mm -hmm. I give it a yum-yum. Yum-yum. We're all on the edge of our seats, waiting to hear the DVD description for the season four finale. What are we watching next time on Babylon 5? On the next Babylon 5. The deconstruction of falling stars. How will history record the acts and exploits of Sheridan and his staff? A ranger from the far-off future looks back on how various eras interpreted the lives and times of B-5's command officers. 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 That will be what will be up next. So everyone, make sure to give Deconstruction of Falling Stars a watch for yourself and tune in next week when we break it all down, when we Thank go over for... the vignettes that lie within. Thank you for joining us on our discussion of Riding Star. No, no, Rachel, it's Rising Star. It's rising. 
JMS will make My right... My notes say otherwise. And your notes can never be incorrect. <laughs> I read no, Rachel's I notes and they said that in our description, you can find our email address, which is yumyumpod at gmail.com. All of the social medias we're on, which is usually under at yumyumpod or at yumyumpodcast, where I, uh, Rachel's notes even say, we post on there a lot and interact with you. That's right, you. And, whoa, Rachel, this is a pretty big thing I'm reading right here in your notes. Maybe you oh, can handle d- this bit of it. Uh, are you going to acknowledge the part in my notes that we skipped over? Well, part of the notes that... Oh, sorry. Yes, I see. I see that there's a little note here that I missed. Lease is great. Oh, I don't know why you wrote that. I, I don't know why you wrote that so small, Rachel. No, like you no, wanted to hide no. it. It, 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 it. Just above that. The fact that... Like, so many rangers help Garibaldi free lease. Like, they're coming out of the woodwork. In a ridiculous way. And you know why? Because he said to the Rangers, he said to Sheridan, he said to everyone, even those mafia guys, I love Lease. And they all just said, of course. Okay. Damn. We must spend five minutes on this now. (laughs) We're going to help you get her back. The most honest reaction to Lease is Besta. Just saying, I don't know. I have no clue. She means nothing to me. But we have a Patreon where we post bonus content over there. Including our full breakdown of Lisa's character, right? Yes, we are going to record that too. And our thoughts on Lisa Hampton, Edgar's Garibaldi. And. The important thing to note about our Patreon is if you support the show, you get a wealth and a bonus. Oh my god, so much bounty of content. Oh my god, I can't hold it. I need a bucket to put it in. Oh no, I need another bucket. I need another bucket. In that vault, but with content that's yum yum. We are talking about The Expanse one episode at a time. We've talked about the Alien movie franchise, the X Men movie franchise, and even the Star Trek movies. We've gone over the best and worst rated episodes of Star Trek. Oh, and there's so much more that you can hear about. Our thoughts on Doctor Who? Have you ever wondered, what do they think about Russell T. Davies? What do they think about Moffat? Just, what do they think? What do they think about Torchwood? What do they think about... We, we, should we do an Our Thoughts on Torchwood? We haven't actually done that. <laughs> yeah, we, we should. <laughs> we should. Um, I feel like I... Okay, this is an off-the-mic discussion. We better be going because I see Jakar running down the corridor with a big sheet of paper with a speech written on it, and I don't have time for Jakar's speeches. I only have time for him to say one thing to me in particular. Good eating to you? Of course. Good eating to you! 